Hi there, my name is Matt Roberts and I'm the host of Thrive, a podcast that looks at the science of workplace performance alongside guests' real-world experiences of building companies that do indeed thrive. Today's guest is Peter Kerr. Peter and I go back a long time now, and nearly every time Peter and I have talked, it has resulted in the meeting either overrunning or the feeling that a great conversation has just been cut short. So it made perfect sense that episode one of this podcast had Peter on to talk about one of our shared passions, objectives and key results or OKRs. But as all of our conversations do, I am sure that other topics will creep in. So Peter, welcome. Without sparing your blushes, would you mind introducing yourself to listeners? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, my name's Peter Kerr. I'm the managing director of OGS and OKR. Um, we're a specialist consultancy that, and the kind of the clues in the name, that focuses primarily on successful OKR executions, working with huge range of businesses. So how did I end up here? Um, my background was IT. I was a IT director for a large advertising group. And that gave me my early signs of change and how rapidly things can happen and how strategy can quickly unfurl. I mean, we as an organization grew from 8 million to 52 million in six years. Um, so quite a roller coaster. From there, I went on to become set my own software company, uh, which I exited in 2008. And really after that, I've been sitting in the world of digital transformation as a coach. And that's what took me along my route to OKRs because too much time spent in boardrooms, putting lots of great post-it notes on walls, generating lots of excitement about strategy, just to see it dissipate and fizzle out and not happen. So started working with a venture capital company doing investment readiness programs and used OKRs as the framework, uh, built up my skills, probably did about 25, 30 projects locally around the northeast of England. And then if you can't be good, be lucky. And uh, I'd optimize my website around OKRs and John Doe wrote his book, Measure What Matters. And since then, we've been working internationally with very large corporations, but still love working with the smaller, aggressive fintech startups. Um, And we do nothing else now. That's OKRs. And genuinely, I don't think I've ever had quite so much fun in my life. So I think, you know, you've obviously done a number of successful implementations. And I think, you know, from my perspective, you definitely should be considered an expert. So... If you were in a cafe drinking espresso with with a business leader that introduced himself, um, how would you describe the what and why of OKRs? Um, it's a really good question. I'd probably do them the other way around. I'd do the why before the what. Um, I would. I think as most things, do a lot of listening first. Start talking about what their problems are. To be honest with you, for most organisations, what we don't very, have is very good conversations. We have very poor conversations internally because we spend half our time updating one another. And what I would say OKRs do is they bring to life great strategic thinking into an actionable plan where everybody understands what they're doing and why they're doing it, but also giving them the opportunity at an early stage to see what's going wrong and do something about it. So the the power of OKRs really is it doesn't sit in glorious isolation. It isn't a fad. It isn't something you can overlay onto your existing organization and say, yeah, there you go, I've fixed all your problems. It's much more deep-seated than that. There's a lot of cultural issues. So I'm talking to that guy in the cafe. I really want to deep dive into understanding a little bit more about where his pain points are. 
because I think OKRs put in well will fix an awful lot of strategic execution issues. But you still got to be realistic about why you're using them and where you're starting from. So, yeah, to summarize, this is not going to be easy, but it'll get things done. And what you've got to commit to is a different type of mindset in terms of your strategy execution, which may lead to some uncomfortable conversations, but in the end will lead to much better meetings and much better conversations. So OKRs are actually about having better conversations, strategy prioritization, and clarity of purpose. Yeah, I mean, so if you take what the classic what an OKR stands for, which is objectives and key results, we're creating something quite high level that people can get behind, they can get really inspired by. But fundamentally, what we're doing is telling stories. We're creating a narrative. We're creating a narrative that brings to life the strategy of the organization and allows it to then tell that to everybody so they've got that common sense of purpose. And the key results are really just how you keep score. So if we think that the game to be played and the objective is to win the game, key results are just a great way of telling everybody on the team what the score is at that particular time. I mean, if if you've played any sport, there's a completely different way you play when you're playing competitively as to when you're just um, playing for fun. You know, the momentum lifts, the whole, the game is on and, and everybody changes. And what you really want people to think of in the organization is, wow, I really know what I'm doing here. This is game on and I'm getting really excited about it. You know, much like the overused analogy of NASA and uh, getting a man to the moon and back. You know, when yep. 1958, they had eight objectives. In 1961, they had one. So to use your game analogy, um, it feels like it's a, it's, a, it's a very public statement of these are the games we are playing in this period well, of time. The public is a really important thing here because... Sometimes we we say that we are quite transparent, but what you've got to accept within OKRs is you have to be really transparent. You have to share what's going on. People have to know what it is. This is why you'll end up with better meetings because you're not constantly updating one another. People are proactively curious about where they are and seeking it out. And I think you're right. It is about making sure you're playing the right game. And does everybody understand what the game is? And that's where that common understanding of purpose what are we aligned to? Why do I come into work in the morning? I think there's, there are so many challenging things we need to look at now as to how an organization is structured, how it communicates with itself, how it delegates authority, how it absolutely defines the decision-making process, because it doesn't naturally flow from a well-constructed organizational chart. Um, how many businesses have you been in that naturally you can see exactly how everything happens because of the org chart it doesn't you know the so the pragmatic thing here is that we need everybody to have one version of the truth they need a platform where they can visit that proactively and then generate a much higher quality of engagement with one another when they're deciding what they have to do next because you know life has a natural way of throwing things that we don't expect i, I can't imagine a single strategy that survived 19 this 2020 that was set up in 2019 yeah you know it all changed in this country we saw the beginnings of it but then march 23rd i'm i'm running some workshops at the moment that i'm asking all of the business leaders that are attending them we're going to go back to march 23rd what would you change what would you do differently now that you know what's happened in the nature of this giant work from home experiment you know, what have you learned about how your teams interact? You know, 
And it's never, ever been more important for everybody to understand exactly why they get up in the morning and what they're trying to achieve, but also to be able to find information out that clearly directs and instructs them about what they want to do. The tendency to micromanage and put too many meetings in diaries and or we'll set up a steering group and we'll have another look into this. You know, you can get paralyzed by it. Mm. Where OKRs, when they work well, they give that level of clarity. So to keep pushing on your on your sort of game analogy and, and that important aspect of clarity, I guess you could then sort of underline and highlight the importance of how you keep score. And obviously the most famous book in this in in this subject area is measure what matters, which obviously indicates that measuring is is important. Um, from your perspective, how much sort of time and effort goes into sort of getting clarity on on how we're going to keep score within within the goals that are being set? It's a really good question because I would, I would I would argue that the best conversations I have in an OKR context are not around the objectives; they're about the key results and. What it does is it often demonstrates a lack of information that's available for business leaders to actually make good decisions upon. I think Tom Peters many, many years ago, if you, any of your listeners old enough to remember, um, in search of excellence, he talked about drip, which was data rich and information poor. And I think we've never been data more data rich. We capture everything. But actually, is it improving our decision making? Are we eliciting the right information? So a lot of what we do when we're looking to set the parameters of OKRs to make sure we set the scene right so they can go in is about that data instrumentation phase. You know, how do we find out where all this data is? Because one of the one of the reasons OKRs stall quite quickly is if the C-suite get giddy and excited and they put it in, but we leave a lot of X to Ys in the key results. We don't get real numbers in. We don't get real metrics. Without those real numbers, you can't take down and tell your story very well. So we, kept, we try and make people quite disciplined about making sure that they've got um, strong numbers. In the first instance, sometimes you don't have them. And part of your OKRs can be benchmarking. That's acceptable, particularly at a quarterly level. But you're not going to be benchmarking for a year. And it's got to be a view to how you then move those numbers. But it, it's, it's, it's an uncomfortable truth. Um, a lot of us, it's a, I used to be in the web development world many moons ago. And everybody would insist on having Google Analytics plugged into their website, which is everybody does. But how many of the organizations you went back to actually understood it, actually got any value from it and derived anything from it? So we were collecting stuff that nobody ever used. OKRs really are about focusing what's unimportant and getting them front and center. Uh, and then you get into the nuances of leading indices against lagging indices, which is you know, yeah. hugely important, I guess. No, definitely. And we see that as well. You've got the teams that give themselves permission to consider what the right metrics are. And if they don't have them, um, baseline them. And the opposite is also common as well. The people who choose to measure what they have access to rather than really what should be measured. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the part and parcel of this is a journey and it's learning. I think the idea that you're going to get OKRs perfectly first time out are really unrealistic. And I think some people think that they should get perfection. Similarly, people look at OKRs and think, well, they're targets. If I don't hit 100%, then I'm somehow a failure. And this is the human aspect of OKRs, where you've got to find the right balance, which is fundamentally why I keep coming back to the storytelling and the narrative. Mm -hmm. I can get behind a story. I can't get behind a rule book. 
if I just presented with a bunch of rules that you can do this, you can't do that, that's not an OKR, that is an OKR, turns people off. you got to put the context of the narrative in there. Always remembering the why, which is, you know, back to sitting in the cafe, supping an espresso. I'm more interested in why you want OKRs and why you want to do it now. And then I can tell you the what and the how. A common phrase that comes up a lot during our chats, Peter, is the Ocrino, OKRs in name only, which is something we get to see a lot. This obviously suggests there are lots of people out there that are using OKRs, but probably not using them very well, which of course is a shame. What's the point, right? So this begs the question, what does using OKRs well look like? I think it what it's well to start with it's usually try not to be too ambitious and, and keep them quite small and focused but when they work well I'll give you a couple of analogies my daughter's a rower she rows in a number of eights fours quads doubles and she says when the rowing team and when the eight is working really well it feels like the boat's lifted that it's going way way quicker there's something quite frictionless about it and there's I think that's what happens when you um, when the OKRs are going well. There is a impetus, there is an excitement that's palpable. But fundamentally, what it's doing it's shifted language. People now have a shorthand way of discussing what's really important, and they can check each other. And it's a it's about creating heavy, healthy levels of conflict. You know, there isn't businesses will struggle to run on consensus. You know, we're not all going to agree on all things, but if we can keep the top level, what our values are, what our purpose are, what our real mission are, never far out of our sight of our conversations, we can agree to differ about how we're going to go about it. So this series of experimentation that happens and innovation, people now are seeking to push themselves out of their comfort zone. And that's only done really by people starting to stretch themselves. And you do not get those behaviors first time off. So the Acrino only, the Acrino that I'm talking about, OKRs and name only, occur when people try and do too much, too quickly, and pour everything they do already into an OKR framework. So suddenly you now just got things on top of things, and there's no distinction. It's really been about quite disciplined. So one good is, do you have a process to triage OKR thinking within a meeting? And what do I mean by that? Well. When I was first starting to do this, what I used to do was I would be all too quick to cut people off. And I'd go, ah, no, no, that's not, that's not an OKR. That's a task. And they would be a bit crestfallen. And then they wouldn't contribute. It might have been a really important task. It might be something that laddered into it. So, let's, so if we're going back to how would you categorize. You can put OKRs, really, uh, the discussions that you're going to generate in these meetings, into four buckets. And the first bucket is one I maybe highlighted. It's like a task. So you might tell me, oh, I've got the IT manager. I remember I had to do a big rollout from moving from Novell to NT4. And I had to do this, manage the whole process. That wasn't an OKR. It was a really big, important task. But in terms of how it was going to shift where the business was going, not really. It was something I had to do. If you're going to get audited next year, yes, massive job getting the audit done not an OKR. These are big projects tasks. Or you might do something really mundane and say, I've got to set up a questionnaire in SurveyMonkey, a task. So don't dismiss that person. Say, this is how I would categorize it in terms of OKRs, but I understand why it's really important. You'll get somebody else will say, we really need to get into the Chinese market. 
Do you? Okay. Will you get into the Chinese market next year? Oh, goodness, no. We're miles off it. But it's our long-term ambition. All right. Well, that's, that's, that's what I would categorize as one for the future. Something we can think of that's got to be important. But right now, I can't affect it in the near term. Then you might turn around and say, well, we've got to make sure that our server uptime is 99.99%. That's an OKR. Sorry, it's not. That's maintenance. That's a health metric. And But you discuss why it's important and how it's laddered in. Now somebody says, we really, really need to sweat our marketing budget a bit harder next year. All right. Oh, what do you mean by that? Well, customer acquisition cost at the moment is $120. I want to get customer acquisition costs down to $60. Wow. That's a... That's quite aggressive. So how do you think we could go about that? Start talking it. Now we're in the realms of an OKR because in the near term, we're going to shift something, either increase it or decrease it within 12 months. And now we can have a very poignant. But it's not about dismissing all the other things. Say, right, I don't want to talk about any of them. I just want to get the OKRs. It's about context. It's about being patient, but actually finding a way that you can put things into the right buckets. There are so many good insights in there. Key themes I picked up on were not to confuse projects and tasks with OKRs, but don't dismiss them as not being really important. Don't create really long-range objectives, try and stick to nearer-term objectives. And don't make business-as-usual health metrics your OKR. Instead, create nearer-term OKRs that target really important objectives and key results. Here's a question I get a lot. Personnel are always changing, so how do you ensure that when people leave and new starters join, you carry on creating great OKRs in the long term. I think that's a really interesting point because it's about, we often get discuss what the roles and responsibilities are of people inside. Um, so obviously we come in as coaches and part of our job is to embed good practice and then leave. But I have a client now where they just purely use me on a quarterly basis to health check their OKRs just as an external facilitator. So how do you keep going with this? Will it... I think you've got to decide what healthy OKRs look like and you've got to decide how you're going to measure them. So when you've got a software platform, for example, then you have ways to check. You have no, you can see things that are happening. You can't just assume. You have to go back and have a look at it. So one of the things that we've tried to do with, is start looking at different types of metrics. You know, look at different ways because really what you're about is behavioral change. Are there some significant behavioral changes happened that are going to allow you to use OKRs in the long term? Or are people going back to their bad old ways? I'll give you a good example. Um, I'm working with a very large financial institution. And it came to pass that what we realized while things weren't getting done, they were having far too many meetings. I mean, like way too many meetings. So the average ex-co member was in 27 hours of meetings per week. So were they all effective? Did they all think that the meeting was the right thing? No, they all complained. And every single workshop we ran with them, they all systematically complained. I don't have time to do OKRs or think about these things because I'm in too many meetings. Hmm, interesting point. You don't have time to execute your strategy. Is that what you're telling me? Or what? what is it about these meetings? And I think it's... Um, this is the opportunity, particularly working in this environment, working remotely, to really get on top of something that's been the malaise of many, many businesses. There are so many businesses, except 
spending hours and hours and hours of executive time achieving nothing. I mean, honestly, if we all looked fairly and, and squarely at us, how many meetings you attend in the last couple of weeks that you thought, wow, I got a real load out of that. I've pushed the needle forward. I've learned more about the business. I'm, maybe there are a couple. But how many of those other meetings have you sat there passively listening and being updated? And I think where OKRs went done well, that shouldn't be necessary. You should be in a position to know what's going on within your company. And if you're in a senior position, you should be looking to ways you can help. You know, you'd, you're there to influence rather than instruct. You're there to help and support. You know, if you, if you look at that typical disc area, if, you, if you're in the dominant area where you're always commanding, controlling, and telling people, sometimes you're lighting more fires than you're putting out. And, um, and I think where I'd like to see when I see OKRs done well, I've had it back. Actually, I've had this. This is genuine feedback. Peter, our board meetings take half the time now. Wow. The preparation that we do, because there's an expectation now, and it, it's how we lean on one another. You know, it's how we work as a team. But I think this passive role within, you know, you, you've got to be proactive. You've got to find out what's going on. You've got to be curious about progress. And then you've got to be have the discipline to keep updating those important numbers. So, so you can see that. And I, I think that's for me when OKRs are starting to work well. You'll have less meetings and the ones you have will be way, way more impactful. You know that the pain around meetings is one of the drums I get to bang a lot. The research actually around the percentage of meetings that's irrelevant and productive is actually staggering. And the percentage of people actually doing their work in meetings is also pretty frightening. All of which would be fine if the fix was really hard, but the reality is it's really not. Check-ins eliminate the general how's it going meeting and fuel better meetings. And you tend to have that sort of focus on plans, progress and problems, which is again at the heart of a lot of what you've been saying. You need to prioritize and focus on the key objectives in the business that make these priorities the heart of those meetings. And if you're having terrible meetings, just be brave and prepare for what is probably a well overdue conversation. When you were talking about buckets of OKRs, you gave the example of the marketing OKR to reduce acquisition costs and the ambitious target that was set as part of that objective. I'd just like to pick you up on why stretch goals matter, as it's often acknowledged but not really understood. It's not about creating hard for hard sake goals. Hard matters because the science says you're much better off when goals are hard than when they're not, period. You then get benefits like the goals being energizing and they really make us stick for a prolonged period of time and stimulate that discovery process that's really important. And when we're faced with something hard, we have to think about how we're going to achieve it. Um, don't know about you, but I have to, re you know, when I get a stretch goal, I have to research new ways and approaches and I need to find people who can sometimes help me. So that's sort of part of the, the whole reason for creating that stretch. When you're working with teams, how much do you need to encourage them to deliberately set these hard to achieve goals? Wow, well, you're getting really to the meat of it now because um, this is where you can't get this out of a book. And I think, thank you, I've told you on many occasions that I haven't seen OKRs go in in exactly the same way twice. I've seen different, I've, I've got consistency in terms of the outcomes I want to achieve at different stages, but they don't tend to go in twice. And the idea of stretch is a really interesting one. And it kind of goes at the heart of probably how the the main three of the main gurus is perceived within OKRs uh, talk about how you do how do you score an OKR? You know, you get to the end of the quarter and you're going to give it a score, and you know they 
the Christine Wodka way in Radical Focus is quite binary. It's either you did or you didn't. It's on or off. It's 50-50, you know? Um, then you've got the John Doorway within, which he starts talking about commitment OKRs as opposed to aspirational OKRs. I think that probably brings in a level of nuance that what can happen there, a commitment OKRs gives people permission to put tasks into OKRs because they say, I will complete this by then, therefore I've made a commitment. So are you really pushing them? Are they really being ambitious there? So I'm kind of with where Ben Lamort's landed and he says you should set yourself a commitment target for an OKR. That's what we would expect to get. But then put a stretch one in too. Have a look around and go. And he made it. He gave me a good example. He was working with a a very, very, very big social media platform. And they were going to launch a particular feature. And the CTO he was working with said, that feature has to be live, Ben, by the 31st of December. Come hell or high water, that's my key result, man. Okay. He said, that's it. And he fought it. And Ben was saying, well, now that's really a task and it's a completion day. I don't see that as a key result. But he said, no, you don't understand how significant this is for the business. Okay. Why is it significant? Well, it's going to open up new markets here. We've got ways of making new revenue streams. We can bring all sorts of things in with this feature. Okay. So what if you got it live a little bit earlier than the 31st and it was starting to release some of these other benefits? Would you think that would be better? Oh, yeah. So now that I've said that, out of 10, hitting the 31st of December, what, what would you give yourselves? Well, I suppose in that context, maybe a five. Okay. So what would be a stretch? What would seven look like? Well, it would be here, here, and it would have generated X hundred thousand of dollars. Ah, right. So we could have a stretch. So often it's about how do you interpret success? But psychologically, you've got to wary of, as you go down the food chain and down into everybody within the organization, depends what you might not have ever worked with goal setting. And the other area you've got to be careful of is people who are heroic and overly ambitious. Salesmen. Um, I worked with a salesman recently, and he wanted to sell three new products into a completely new market. So probably as tough as it's going to get, new products into a new market that you don't know or have any track record for. And he's going to do those three sales within 90 days, according to his OKR. That's how his objective was set. And this was his key result. And he failed completely. And we were on a review meeting, and the CFO was on the review meeting as well. And said, who on earth let that key result go through? Bit of silence. I'm saying I you know, have to play ignorant. I don't know. Why, why is that such a bad thing? So does anybody in this room know what our average cold to sold time is from having never met us to actually getting a purchase order? No. 367 days. So 367 days. That was wildly ambitious. So you've got to temper this with in realism. The other side of things is people are quite, they have a loss aversion. They don't like losing. I mean, I've been, I've been self-employed since 2002, run companies, done lots of things. I can still imagine far more closely somebody coming and trying to take my house off me than be sitting in a yacht in the Bahamas. You know, My mind is still loss averse, but I've taught myself to push myself and push it. And it's a learned skill. 
which is again why we don't advise going to individual level too quickly with OKRs, if ever. As a team sport, you're going to be more courageous. Teams will naturally push themselves harder, but it also allows you to support one another as that you're in on it as a team. So I like the stretch part to be very much in a team environment rather than saying you as an individual go off and think about how you're going to push yourself harder. And how much do you think teams or individuals think that actually if they set a hard goal, it could be as serious as career limiting or whether that's actually a reality or whether that's a perception? I, I think it is. It's human. And um, going full circle back to culture, you know, do you have the right culture? But also, do you have the right organizational structure to actually empower people to feel that they can make those decisions without fear? You know, the... Um, I think you did, and you shared some great stuff about Google, didn't you, around about what builds a successful team, you know, and how, how that works. And I, and I think you've taken a lot of that learning and, and put it into your platform, which is good because people do need to feel psychological safety, you know, and you do that through trust, you know, that, that area where we can have a healthy disagreement and conflict also brings you around to the idea of experimentation, you know, People talk a lot about innovation, don't they? And and how they can innovate. And yeah. you can look at lots of things around that. But fundamentally, we don't know what we don't know. And we have to do a lot of initiatives that we do within our companies are a series of experiments. And we find out and we test our hypothesis and we're right and we move on or we learn and we adapt and we, and we go. So, yes, absolutely. I would say getting the the right atmosphere for OKRs and the right culture for OKRs is absolutely embedded in their success. I'll give you a really, to me, what I've often seen with the Acrino, C-suite and senior managers look at OKRs and they say, will this help us get what we were going to do anyway faster? Oh yeah, we'll have OKRs. Wrong reason to do it. Because there needs to be a different shift in mentality. You've got to trust You've got to start thinking about how you're going to tell this great story about your strategy. And, you know, I think it's it's one of those crimes, I guess, of managers and senior people running businesses. We've almost come to accept that low levels of productivity directly attributed to low levels of engagement, like something we can't do something about. Mm. People will do things in a different way if they care about them. You know, you will you act differently about things you care about. And part of the trick of getting OKRs right is giving people some very focused things to care about. And again, back to your point about um, people feeling fearful, the more and more key results that they get put to them, the more and more OKRs that are poured on them, the more fearful they'll be. So less is more to start with, particularly at the top end. From my perspective, it's certainly true that the more you have to focus on, the more you dilute that focus. Which brings me on to something that is way too common, given how easy and relatively inexpensive it is to get right. What we sometimes call the OKR reboot. So why are there so many failed attempts and why are these reboots necessary? Because it's really hard to win over that cynical crowd second time round. Um, it's a really, really interesting question because definitely what we've seen... Um, is a huge uptick in the number of what you're calling OKR reboots, people who've tried it and failed and decided they need some sort of external help. Um, they're quite tricky, actually, because, you know, without being 
it's a bit like if you're asked for directions and you tell somebody I wouldn't start from here. Um, well, you are where you are. And the when we start on this journey with people new to OKRs, cynicism isn't just a product of people who've tried it and failed. Cynicism is there about pretty much every single managerial fad or initiative that pops up that gets popular. And I deal with that. I think I don't think I've done a workshop yet where somebody hasn't sidled up to me and go, so it's OKRs this year. What do you think it will be next year? And I, well, for me, nothing, because uh, this is what I believe in and it gets the results. And that's because in many cases, the, the business advice industry and the business consultancy industry is a highly profitable failed business. You know, you, it's a bit like the diet industry. You know, everybody knows if you eat less and jump about more, you'll get slim. But there's millions and millions and millions of pounds and dollars spent producing books. And it's the same with the business area. So I would say for those that are have been and tried it, I think what you've got to do is almost take a fresh pair of eyes and say, why did we want to do this in the first place? What was it that we were trying to achieve? What was our main frustration? So go back to grassroots and then take them through this um, process where they start limiting the scope of how they try and do it. Um, the difficulty of a very large organizations, and let's be frank about why large organizations are looking at this, they're scared. They realize that they are not equipped for transformation. They're not equipped for change. And change is uncomfortable at all levels. I mean, there's many, many consultants out there who know a lot more about change than I do. But OKRs are usually brought in by CEOs who recognize, perhaps in a very traditional business, that they need to behave more like the tech companies. If you look where OKRs are successful in these large organizations like Google and Facebook and Microsoft and lots and lots of other businesses on the West Coast of the United States, you think about what their combined value is if you look at the Fortune 500. There is a disproportionate amount of tech companies using OKRs who are generating huge levels of value. Well, that's not gone unnoticed by CEOs of older companies. So they think that it, by putting it in and reading the book and saying, look, what we're going to do is we're going to have a sharper cadence. What happens is politics takes over within the boardroom. Every single person that has a C-suite function decides they need an OKR. So you get one for finance, you'll get one for the legal team, you'll get one for marketing, you'll get one for sales. Suddenly, they're getting laddered down. You've got a matrices organization. You've got some poor middle manager that's got to align to like 25, 30 different key results. And it just dissipates. It's about focus. So going back to where you want to get to and being very, very disciplined for a short period of time to get it right, the top end of a company needs to know what good looks like. Otherwise, how on earth could they a judge how everybody else was doing it. So yes, it's common. I would say, I would say, I guess that it's, you, you have a better chance of doing it with good coaches to start with, but we try and create OKRs out of every project we do. We have, we have a desired result of what we want to do with this engagement. And we've got some key results of how we measure it. And we mm. drive our projects that way. So we're sure that we're walking the walk, but, uh, what it displays sometimes is some uncomfortable truths within an organization about how they're structured, things that need to change, what they need to pay focus on, what they need to have attention on. And that often becomes because perhaps an unheard voice starts to be heard. I'll tell you a very good example is always about technical debt. If you're a tech company, 
there's always an uncomfortable silence and the CTO sometimes isn't the person that can actually talk about the level of technical debt that a company's carrying. But at some point, you're going to have to address it. And it's, uh, it's these sort of conversations, back to our starting point, triggering better conversations. I said better, not easy. Sometimes the best conversations are difficult at all levels. And that's OKRs are about being prepared to have some difficult conversations and then do something about it. Peter, prioritization is a recurring theme in this conversation, which is, of course, as much an exercise in what you don't do as what, as what you do do. And as such, OKRs are great at that. Um, strategic pillars are good for that as well. But one thing that I wonder is because OKRs are not simply called goals, does this create the idea that I don't know how to use them? And as such, a sort of form of paralysis? When in reality, We've all set goals from a young age, and it's part of business and part of what we've sort of learned to do within business at all levels. So if we were just to think about OKRs as not this new language, but instead as just a simple toolkit for approaching goals, does that actually make life easier for everyone? I would. Yeah, I think the simplification's good. I think that, I mean, you can make an industry. I, I don't. I don't make any money about writing and talking about OKRs. I, I only make my money by actually making them happen within real organizations. It's not theory for me, it's practice every day. But I think your point is well made because it's, but it is back to the why, you know. It, I think another common mistake, and I think you're touching on it with what you're talking about. Some people confuse OKRs with strategy execution with strategic planning, and they, they haven't fully thought through their strategic plan. So they haven't articulated a very clear goal a strategic plan by its very nature should have a goal. And what I can sometimes find is I go into an OKR situation and I'll have something which will say, pursue operational efficiency. That's our strategic goal. Really? You could be anybody. You could be any company doing anything. And how will you know that you've got there? What does operational efficiency look like? What's so bad about it now? You know, you know another glacial-like... Um, Key result I see everywhere, MPS. Oh, we're going to move MPS from X to Y. Okay. You do realize that's quite glacial. It doesn't move very quickly. Why do you think you could, if you don't have people wanting to refer you now, why do you think that is? I'm more interested in that conversation than said, yeah, we're just going to measure this by MPS. Move on. And then it hasn't moved in a year's time. And you go, mm, what did that, what went, wrong, what went wrong there? So, you know, I would argue sometimes that the strategic thinking hasn't rested on a very definitive result. And as a result, when you put OKRs in, it's a bit like when you pour water into sand, it'll just go everywhere. It has no funnel to be directed at because you haven't fundamentally thought through where you want to end up. So I would do more strategic. and Because again, look at the way that that word has gone into the lexicon of business. Strategic planning. How many times do you hear that? Strategic planning. Oh, we're going to do some strategic planning. They're two different disciplines. Strategic thinking, execution planning. Two different things. You know, and the strategic thinking is not what OKRs are there to do. They don't help you think. You think anyway. You know your business. You find your goals. You articulate the direction of travel, where you want to be. OKRs are there to, okay, we've done that great thinking. How do we give them focus and alignment and make sure we don't go off and deviate off the path to getting them done? 
And I think that's perhaps when you see Acrino, when I see OKRs, they haven't worked here. I think you can actually sometimes go back and ask the question, have you done all of the strategic thinking you needed to do? Great advice, especially as we're approaching 2021 planning. Defining the key battlegrounds you must win and want everyone to lean into is really foundational and that sits before OKR creation and sets you up for the success that everyone I think is looking for when they're using OKRs. Which reminds me of an old conversation we've had where we actually imagine the executive team to invent the best way to set goals in the world on a whiteboard. We thought that what they'd write is good goals should align with strategy, they should contain quality metrics and probably have a bias towards leading indicators rather than lagging. And of course, we've already discussed how things they should be hard and have an element of stretch um, for really good sort of research-based reasons. Um, we'd want them to align both vertically and horizontally. And if you actually carry this exercise on, you'd invent something that is incredibly similar to the OKR, if not the OKR. Yeah, I do. well, you touch on a couple of good things there. One, I can't coach abstractly. You know, I can't say, oh, let's imagine that we're going to go and climb Mount Everest or cross the ocean. And we'll, we'll do some theoretical stuff about uh, what's an objective, what's a key result, what's a task. I haven't found that ever to work for me. It has to get to the, the reality. But if I go back to the example that I gave around the reducing customer acquisition cost to $60 from $120, how many conversations have people said we've got to sweat our marketing budget more effectively? I mean, I was in advertising land and the standard joke was that half my marketing budget works. I just don't know which half. And um, I think the idea now that we can measure things at a far more forensic level. So you can have a complete conversation with the marketing and sales directors to talk about customer acquisition costs. But what you're saying is something has to change. If you're saying, if you continue doing exactly what you're doing now, what are your chances of reducing that customer acquisition cost by the 100% that you want to reduce it by. Is it there? Nope. So what are you going to do different? Well, I'm going to do this. Okay, first experiment then. We're going to have to step out of our comfort zone now and try something we haven't done before. Oh, God, what's that look like? Well, how long should we do that for? Well, let's do it for 90 days and see how we get on. All right, so what do we need to measure? Well, we need to we need probably some top of funnel metrics here to look at. We need to look at are we getting the right leads in and quality? Okay, let's and let's see how that goes. I could run that experiment without ever using the word OKR. Mm. But I've just created one. Yeah. I've created an objective which is aligned to the annual key result which is to reduce customer acquisition cost. I've come up with a bunch of tasks and initiatives. I've identified the who in the organization that's going to help me do that. And I've empowered them and given them authority to go and experiment to try and make it happen. And then what I will want from them is to revisit that number regularly to see if it's working and then come back to them and put it somewhere where I can go find out. Does that sound terrible? It doesn't have to be. And I've not used the word OKR once. You know, it's a, you can tell a story about what you want to achieve without burdening people with a lot of language, you know? And then, well, okay, if you want to formalize that and get it across the whole organization in general, why don't we, we've got a thing, this framework, which is a critical thinking framework called OKRs, which if we keep everybody thinking this way, it keeps everybody focused on what we want to achieve and it can systematize this, but you've got them to get the light bulbs going first as to why they're doing it. So it sounds like we should just drop the term OKR and just call it good goal setting 
which of course is what it is. I think that'll happen. I think in time that'll happen. You know, I, I think it's. Uh, I, I I think you know, great strategy execution. You know, making things happen, whatever it is, is around being very clear about what the goal is. If you understand what the goal is and the steps you need to get there, then I think it'll probably evolve. Yeah, I mean, my passion is seeing companies excel, doing brilliant things, teams coming together and go. I got an email on very, very late on Friday, having run two day sessions with a client, and it opened up with the word, wow. That's the feedback you want. Wow, you've completely changed how we've looked at things. The team is energized and focused, and we want to do that. It's not because anybody's read a book. It's because we've turned our lights on, and OKRs are a terrific vehicle to start making those conversations happen, but it happens from within. and. I think eventually companies will be doing this because it would be the right thing to do because it gets things done. If we were to summarise our best advice for thinking about 2021 planning based on this conversation, what would it be? I'll kick it off. The key theme from today is the need to ruthlessly prioritise and focus and be prepared to deprioritize. Yeah, I would agree. And I think um, you now have to think remote by default for a lot of companies. You know, how are you going to engage and communicate with a workforce that are not all necessarily in the same building anymore? Most of the top clients I'm talking about now, a lot of them are, not, are already saying the senior team are not going back till June of next year at the earliest. June, that's half of next year gone. So what does that mean? You know, back to how we went, you know, I think we've gone, here's a goal for you. How can we have better meetings next year that are more impactful and drive the business forward? Discuss. Put that across the whole of your management team and see what comes back. How do we get better meetings? What frustrates you about what we're doing at the moment? What have we learned from doing things remotely? You know, what's gone well? What's gone badly? You know, I think this is about embracing learning and we've just had the big work from home experiment to not learn something from that now would be a real, real mistake. So, yeah, learn from the last six months. And then I think also the other thing is visiting your goals more regularly. You know, this this is regardless of OKRs, if you've set yourself a goal for the end of 2021, how often do you visit the progress? And, you know, ask you those, those, those sort of questions. I think these are hugely important times that we're going to face in the next two or three years. I think you're tying two things together there rather nicely, which is, you know, you've, you've talked about the challenge of, 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 you know, running and having running better meetings, having fewer meetings. But you're also saying that the, you know, a, a key thing to recurringly come back to is what you're trying to achieve um, which is your goals, and actually they're probably part of the agenda of every meeting. One fact that I carry around that I can throw out there constantly is, you know, if you're having an average of 15 hours of meetings in a week um, across an organization of 100 people, that's 72,000 meeting hours are going on in any one um, year, and you've reduced that to down 11, just four less, you know, than 15. And you're you're saving over thirty thousand hours just through, you know, minor improvements in in 
you know, when you choose to have meetings and when you choose not to have them. And then, you know, you know, of course, that's without the the boost of have, running better meetings in the first place. And I think when we talk about prioritization and time and and focus and all of the things that we're trying to inspire people with goal setting frameworks, again, it's it's that atom of time is 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 a sort of thing that I keep coming back to and I and I and I find it difficult to shake. Which is again, you know, a company of a hundred people has a hundred and seventy thousand hours in a year to apply to to what? It's goals, right? It's that's what we're applying time to. So then the question is, well, what goals? And if you, if you if the what goals aren't good goals, and if we're not applying applying time um, in a in a effective way and in a, a focused way and a productive way then you know that's that's where you can lose and i think you know we are we are in a competitive environment we are we are always trying to survive um and and better than that of course the name of the podcast is to thrive so i think you know how we how we think about time is kind of really gets to the heart of all of what we're trying to sort of discuss here yeah and and, and i think how we think about turning up for work you know how do we think about we are as part of a team you know, we're a team that's there to achieve things. You know, nobody wants to sit there and not achieve. You know, it's really, really disheartening to be, you know, playing for the team that gets absolutely hammered every week and nobody's doing anything about it. And nobody's learning the lessons. Nobody's asking why. People play the blame game. You know, you're going to say what you're going to be about next year. I think let's be really, really honest about what we do and why we do it. Let's be really, really honest about what we need to fix. And let's really commit to doing it and set some goals that are going to set us apart. I mean, on a positive note, I think you can, we're all obligated to make our futures bigger than our past. How do we do that? How do we envisage a future that's bigger than our past? And I think it's, that's where you're going to have to let go of some of the thinking that this pre-crisis is and, and, and find new ways of doing stuff. And, and embrace the change. Peter, I think that's a great place to end. Thanks so much for joining me on this podcast and sharing some, what is some really incredible and useful advice for everybody. You've been a wonderful guest. Hope to have you back soon.